we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we worship, and that worship, of course, includes singing your praises, and it includes praying, and it includes giving, and it includes also listening to your word. This is an act of worship on our part. It's good to do. You've instructed us to do it. We come by faith to listen, so we pray that you would, by your power, enable us to hear well, enable us to believe, enable us to, obviously, to understand that we would believe. And and so, Father, I pray even now that you would overcome any resistance that we have to your word and that you would use it in such a way to help us, to encourage us, to enable us to persevere. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to read again this chapter. Uh, We've been reading it for a while now, but uh, verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians, please. Hear the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. For the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want this morning, if God will help me, to take up this prayer at the end of this chapter, just verses 11 and 12. We've gone through the rest of it in the last couple of weeks. And just by way of review, I know this may feel tedious at times, but I I don't expect you to remember what I preach from week to week. I don't know if that's a relief to you, but I don't expect it. A sermon is, is, is to be received on that day and help you. The course of time, some you may remember well. I may remember better than others, uh, but... Uh, But I don't expect the details to be in your mind. Oh, yes, he said this and that. So I like just often at the beginning to set, if you will, the context. I remember, probably the reason I do this, I remember that when I was in graduate school some time ago studying economics, I had a very difficult class. 
was like the one that either, either made you or broke you in the context of that program. And, and I remember the professor did something very helpful, and that is in the first five minutes of class, he reviewed what he had said. And often, it was in that five minutes that what he had said in the previous lecture and that I had tried to grapple with that after that class, I saw it, just in, just in the simplicity of those moments. So, so that's one of the things that motivates me. Sometimes I think these five minutes... All right, sometimes 10. These five minutes of review uh, kind, of, kind of help us to kind of put it to week by week to kind of just connect and connect and connect and connect. Because you see, these New Testament letters especially weren't written like one would re- write an essay on a particular topic necessarily. What's in mind here in Paul is to write to a particular group of people about particular issues facing them. And so it's important for us as much as we possibly can to understand them uh, because this letter was first written to them and then on their shoulders to hear what God is saying to us. All right? So, so that's the reason for all this. Now you might remember that when Paul writes now this second letter to the church in Thessalonica, he's writing to enable them to persevere, or as he puts it in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, to stand firm. And he's writing them to stand firm because he has a concern. The concern is that they're being persecuted for their faith. It's a young church. Paul was only there a little while, and then he left, and and it hasn't been that long since he's been gone, and so it's a young church. So he's writing to them to help them, to encourage them, to give them hope so that they can stand firm in the faith. Because you see, when they were converted, when they believed, the people in their community turned against them. Because you see... uh, Everything changed for them at that point. And their fellow citizens of Thessalonica thought them no longer to be worthy of that city. Because you see, they no longer believed the same way their fellow citizens believed. They no longer aspired to the same things their fellow citizens aspired to necessarily. And certainly not for all the same reasons. Their behaviors changed. It says they turned from their idols, so even the religious thought changed dramatically. And so they're no longer considered by their fellow citizens as really belonging to or worthy of being called Thessalonians. And and, and so they experienced not only the emotional suffering that that might bring, being sort of always the odd man out, but also it got worse till there was actually physical persecution upon them. And so Paul, understanding all that that meant, wrote to them to try to encourage them to stand firm in the faith, even in the midst of all of this. And so when he writes to them, you see, he writes to them in, in such a way that, 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 that to, to give them hope. And so he gives him, gives him gives them the very word of God. You see, because this perseverance is standing firm for a Christian, for a believer in Jesus, for a follower of Jesus, is necessary. Remember, Jesus said, 
Put your hand to the plow. Don't turn back. He who endures to the end will be saved. So it isn't, it's something that, that defines us now as believers. This is our life. And so we're to stand firm in the faith. So how are we going to do that? Well, fortunately for us, God has promised that he'll enable us to do that. But, but yes, what's the means through which he enables us to persevere? And there are a variety of means as we read through the scripture, a variety of instruments, things God gives to us so that we'll be enabled, strengthened to persevere to the end. Worship is one of them as we gather to worship. Right? We turn our sights upon God and, and who he is and his strength and power. And it is to encourage us in our faith in such a way that we worship together. God has designed us, in fact, as human beings, to stop one day in seven and gaze. If we don't do that, we find ourselves slipping. It's just the way it is. And we must come together weekly. Church, the word church, means a gathering. And so if we're to be church, then we gather together. And this weekly gathering is a means of God's grace to us to enable us to persevere. In the midst of that, he gives us sacraments. Baptism, he gives us communion. These in the context of worship. Turn our sights upon God to enable us to persevere. He gives us fellowship, love for one another. This letter that he writes to them expresses his love to them. There's fellowship together they have with one another, loving one another, loving one another, encouraging one another. another. That's helpful to them, you see, as they persevere as they stand firm, all necessary. But he relies primarily in this letter and really throughout the scripture upon two means of persevering. One is the very word of God. He gives us the word of God to strengthen and that strength comes not only by wisdom that we get from the instruction on how we're to live, but also by encouragement, by speaking to us that which is true. Now when Paul was writing he knew that what he was writing was the very word of God. You might remember in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, he writes to them, verse 13. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. And so Paul said, when we came, you heard us speak, and you knew, received what we said, men said, not as the word of men, but what it really is, was to them, the word, the very word of God, you see, and that's what it was. And then in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 8, after he's written to them about purity and holiness, he says, therefore... Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. So he says, you can't turn away from what I've written to you because this is, in fact, the very word of God. And then, so much so that as he signs off his letter to, the, to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This isn't a casual thing. This is, in fact, the very word of God. And then he reiterates that in 2 Thessalonians, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. He says, I'm sorry, verse 15. He says, Though then, brothers, stand firm 
and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What we spoke to you, what we write to you, this is what you must hold to. And so this word of God that we have in the scripture is a means of God's grace to us. It's truth to enable us to persevere. So here's what he tells them to enable them to persevere. He encourages them that, yes, they are persevering, not just simply holding on by, the, by, by their nails, uh, but, but he says you're persevering uh, because your faith is abounding. That is, it's growing by leaps and bounds. And your love for one another is increasing. That is, you're flourishing in the faith. You're persevering, persevering even in the midst of this persecution. That's an encouragement to them. But then he goes on to tell them this. He says, the persecution that you're receiving right now, that you're experiencing, is evidence that the Thessalonians may not think you're worthy of their city, but that God thinks you're worthy of the kingdom of God. Because you see, Jesus said that they would treat us the way they treated him, and they're treating you the way they treated him. And this shows that you belong to him. Take Jesus said, rejoice and be glad, for they treated the prophets like this. Rejoice and be glad, because they treated Jesus like this. And he says, not only that, here's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. What you're suffering now is injustice, but God is just, and he'll repay. What you may be feeling now is that God doesn't care about you, because you are being persecuted, and it's painful. But God does care about you, and you'll know that when he returns because you see he'll be glorified in you and you'll marvel at him. A day will come when you'll see that the present suffering isn't worth being compared to the glory that will come on that day. So take heart. Don't be bitter. Don't be angry. Oh, it's sad. But be patient. Rejoice. God is with you. So his word comes as a comfort to them. But now he takes up a second means of grace, a means through which they're to persevere to the end. And and this second means of grace is his praying for them. You'll notice in verse 11, he says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays for them. Not a surprise. Uh, We've been reading of his praying for them um, throughout these letters. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So he says, we're constantly mentioning you in our prayers. When we pray, you're on our list. We pray for you all the time, every time that we pray. So it isn't a surprise that he prays for them here. His prayers, as we read about them in his letters, are often to God to give thanks to God for their faith, for their love, for their hope, and all of that, but, but he has specific requests as well. In First Thessalonians, we know that specific request was for their sanctification, that they walk in holiness. 
that God would strengthen them in such a way that they would be blameless in his sight and that they would persevere to the end. And that final sort of benedictory prayer that is in the end of 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body become blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, a prayerful sentiment of these praying that they be sanctified and kept blameless, be holy and, and persevere to the end. And so, so that's this time of, of praying for them. In fact, so much this life of prayer that in that chapter 5 of the first letter that he writes in them, verse 17, he says, pray without ceasing. So that was Paul's attitude. To pray, you see, without ceasing. In other words, he's saying that our life is to be characterized by prayer. Our life is to be characterized by a recognition all the time of our complete dependence upon God. Praying is that. Praying is our expression of complete dependence upon God. We cast all of our cares upon him. That's the sense of praying. To all that he's promised, we're dependent upon him. So we pray, you see. And so he says, that should characterize the life of a believer. That should characterize one who's following Christ. That we pray without ceasing, that we know that we're utterly and completely all the time dependent upon him for our next breath, for everything. So he says then, pray without ceasing. So notice this, this prayer. It has a context, he says, to this end. Or if you have a NIV, New International Version, it says, with this in mind. So to this end, so it has a context. There's something that's led him not only to pray, but has led him to this particular prayer, to this end. And then we see his concerns or his petitions. There are two, really. He says, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. It's the first one. He's praying that God would make them worthy of the calling that God has given to them, put upon them. And then the second one is, and may God fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. In other words, that God would bring to fruition or completion every desire for, every resolve for good that you have, that I have, that they have, and that by his power he may bring to fruition, completion, every work of faith. So those are his petitions. And, and then he has an aim. The reason he's praying this, really, that his objective, the final outcome that he desires from God answering these petitions and the, the final outcome is so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. And then he has a particular confidence. The reason he has the guts to pray this and the confidence that God will actually do this. And he says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins with the context. Why is he praying this particular prayer? And he says, to this end or with this in mind, with what in mind? Well, perhaps it's all that we've reviewed that he has in mind. The fact that they are persevering, but in fact that they are being persecuted, but the fact that their persecutors will be paid back, 
and the fact that a day will come when they'll be relieved of all of that and, and Christ will be glorified in them and they'll marvel at him. It could be all of that or it could be just the last bit of that, that that's really pulling him into this. He says, listen, you, you need to realize that at the end, you'll get it. At the end, you'll say, oh, everything he ordained was right. And you'll rejoice in everything that he ordained to this end. See, what Paul's doing here and what we ought to do is he's living his present life in light of the future. He's living the now in light of what is to come. See, we, we need to do that in life. A student, for instance, you sit down, if you're a student, and you sit down and plot out your studies, you should take now, this semester, something that will contribute to the end goal, something called graduation, right? So, so you should have graduation in mind, what that takes, and then take now what will contribute or be consistent with that. Right? Athletes, they need, they need to practice today with the game in mind. Right? right? If you're going to get married, you, you should live today with the end in mind, which is getting married, ultimately, and, and then living all your life in love with this other one. So you should live today with that in mind. And so Paul lays out what's in mind. In fact, we ought to pray always with the end in mind. In fact, when Peter writes to that church that's suffering, here's how, here's how he put it, puts it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers so that you can pray well. He says, pray today knowing that the end is near. That will sober you up. That will serious you up, you see. You'll say, oh, how should I, what's really important knowing that the end is near, the end is at hand. We think about that. You see, it's necessary for us to keep this end in mind to be able to persevere in our praying, to be able to know how it is that we're to pray, and even to be able to persevere to the end. There's a story told, a true story. I've been told it's a true story. I actually found it on the internet. It's a story about a woman named Florence Chadwick in 1952. who was attempting to swim from Catalina Island off the coast of California to the shore. Long swim. She had swum the English Channel before, so she was pretty sure she could do it. But, but you see, it was a foggy day, a horrible day. And as she began to swim, she tired quickly and she became exhausted. She began begging her trainer and even her mother, who was on board the, 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 the trailing boat, to, the, to, to, to just pull her out of the water. And they kept encouraging her. They kept saying, no, 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 you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And then finally, exhausted, she just simply stopped swimming. And they pulled her out of the water and they brought her to shore. Sadly, when they brought her to shore, she was less than a half a mile from the shore. 
And her comment at the end was, I don't blame anyone other than myself for what happened. But it was such a foggy day. I'm sure that if I could have seen the shoreline, I would have been able to finish. So what the apostle is doing here in part is keeping the finish ahead of us. He said, no, a day will come. A day will come. And Christ will be glorified. You'll see him. And when you see him, you'll marvel. And in your marveling, you'll say, yes, it was all worth it. Keep that in mind. And pray with that in mind. That's the end. And so he says, to this end, uh, let's, let's pray. So here's how he prays for them, because he knows the end. He knows what's going to happen when Christ returns. So he says, so, so here's I'm going to pray day by day, and here's I'm going to pray for you to enable you to continue to, so that you would get to that day. So his petitions are twofold here. We see first this. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of your faith by his power. This first petition, that God will make you worthy of his calling. Now, when Paul speaks of his calling, he's speaking really of God's calling, thus he's speaking of their salvation. When Paul speaks and uses this word call, that we've been called, uh, he uses that expression not simply as an invitation, but as this call that comes by way of the gospel that brings with it power, that brings new life, that enables us to believe. So when Paul speaks of his or God's calling, he's speaking of their salvation. For instance, in, in Romans, we know this passage. In Romans and chapter 8, beginning with verse 28, this that's how he puts it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For, and this is why that's true, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he's saying this is this unbroken, really, chain of events. We end with our being glorified, made perfect, because we've been justified, and all those then who've been justified will be glorified. But all those who have been justified, declared righteous by God, also have been called by him. And all those who were called by him were predestined. That is, that was their destiny, to be called, to be justified, to be glorified. And, and, so, so, and, and, and all those who were predestined were those God had, in a very special way, a saving way, loved them. So all that's together. So when Paul writes to this church about how they were called, he says this, First Thessalonians and chapter 1, verse 4, he says, We know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction or full effect. This call was effective. So he says you've received this call that brought to you new life. 
and enabled you to believe. Now, my prayer for you, he says, is that you live, live worthy of that, or you live consistent with that, that your life shows that you have been called. Your life shows that you have been saved. Your life shows that you have been forgiven. Your life shows that you have been declared righteous by God, that your life shows that you've been adopted into his family, that your life shows that he is at work in you now to make you holy, that your life shows that you anticipate a day when that will come to completion and you will be in him glorified. All right? That's what he says. Now, he isn't saying, I'm praying that you become worthy so that he will call you. I'm not saying that at all. Because we know that none of us, in that sense, are worthy of this calling. We're saved by grace, meaning it's a gift. Through faith, meaning to come into it, we renounce our goodness, or our perceived goodness. We renounce trust in ourselves, and we trust only in Christ. And so it isn't that we're worthy to be called, but he says, when he calls you, this gift, now he says, live up to it, if you will. Live consistent with it. Live showing that it's true of you. Now it's fascinating to me and helpful that in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, he says a similar thing, but not in the context of prayer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so we've told you this is what you need to do. But now what he's doing for them is praying for them that this will happen, that God will help them to live as a Christian. So you see, each of us should, all, should be thinking for us and for those we love, for us and for others, so we can pray for us and we can pray for, we can pray for ourselves and we can pray for others. What do I need to really be able to live like one who has been forgiven? Here's, here's a list that I keep. I, I pray that God will enable me to live as one who is secure. If I've been forgiven, if I've been declared righteous, if I've been adopted into his family, I pray that he'll enable me to live as one who's secure in that. Now my, my general inclination is not to be terribly secure. I know that I can't manufacture this. I can't do this. My default mode is insecure. And so he says, I'm supposed to live worthy of this calling. Well, then I need his help and strength. I know that, you see. When I read I'm to live worthy of this calling, it could destroy me if I thought it was up to me to muster up 
feelings of security. But he says, no, 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 no. Pray. So, so I pray a lot that I would be secure in the love of God, you see. I pray that he would enable me to have confidence before him. So I, I would really know that he receives me and hears my prayers. I pray that I would live as one who really is forgiven and who knows that. Because one who forgives and knows that then would be one who is grateful, one who is humble, one who is gentle, one who is merciful, and one who forgives. That's living consistent with this calling. I pray that he helps me with my faith, that I would be one who trusts. Because I know my default mode is not to. It's to worry, it's to be anxious. But one who lives worthy of his calling, worthy of God, shouldn't that person, shouldn't I be someone who really trusts him after all of this? I mean, he who gave his own son did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also with him give us all things? Shouldn't I trust that? Shouldn't I know that? Shouldn't I hang on to that? Why is it that I live so anxious? I'd be patient, wouldn't I? That'd be true of me. I pray. I'd be, I'd be compassionate, wouldn't I? I would, I would pray that, that all the fruit of the Spirit would be true of me, that Christ would be formed in me. Shouldn't that be true of someone who's been called, someone who's been forgiven and justified and being sanctified and adopted and all of that. Shouldn't that be true of me? Well, that's just part of my list. I could, I could go on. And to pray like that, you see. And, and then notice, he says too, this next petition, he says that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his by his power. And, and, and I realize then that what should be true of me is that I should be conscious that I'm to do good. One who's been called by God, if, if I'm praying that God will bring to fruition every desire that I have, every resolve I have for good, and that he, by his power, would bring to fruition every work of faith, then it seems to me that I should be conscious of or aware of the fact that I'm to do good. And, and I, should have, I should have a list. I should have, I should have ideas about how I'm to do good. I, I really should. Because if, if God would say, uh, Bill, you just prayed that I would fulfill every resolve for good that you have and every work of faith by my power, what good are you planning to do? And I might say, I, I don't know. And I think he'd say, well, come back when you know. Now we know the good news is that God's at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he has plans, he has good. But you see, when he says these works of faith, he's not talking about miracles and all of that, you know, these great grandiose things of faith. He's saying the ordinary Christian life is to be lived by faith. What that means is that when I read through the scripture, I see the good that I'm to do. And then he says, by faith then, 
do it. Trust me, this is really good to do. Frankly, a lot of times I read in Scripture, God, that's not something that would have crossed my mind to do that's good. Right? But I read it and I go, okay, that's good. So I believe it. That's faith. But, but then I'm stuck. Because my natural tendency isn't always to do good. And so he says, I know. So pray. Pray. Pray that God would bring all of these desires for good to fruition. We read through the scripture, for instance, this. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 9, and verse 8. Paul writes to that church and he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And so I pray, God, first of all, would you give me all grace that I may abound in everything good, in every good work. And, and in that, help me to know what really is good so that I could do it. Help me to know that, that really, we, we know this one too, Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10, after speaking to us about having been saved by grace through faith, Paul ends that, that whole piece by saying, For we are his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so you see, God has he's prepared good works for us to do. I should be conscious of that which that which is good. I read this morning in the midst of, of our, our, our early the early parts of our worship, I read from Titus in chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Here's why. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works we're to be good in Jesus and we're to do good in Jesus chapter 3 verse 1 Titus remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready for every good work in the midst of our communities we should be thinking can I do good here in Lawrence, Kansas? And God help me to do that good. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. I want to you know, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You see, we're to do that which is good. And so, Paul knows that. He says, listen, if you're going to make it, if you're going to persevere to the end, you need to be worthy of this calling and you need to do good. Now, to do good, you're going to need to pray that God will help you do that. So, again, my, my list, one of them, about doing good. I pray, God, how can you help me do good to our parents. In the course of family, what would it mean for me to do good to my father? What would it mean for me to do good to Karen's parents? How should I, what are the things to do there? You see? How can I 
do good to my children as a parent. But what does it mean to, to, to resolve to do good to them, to love them, to care for them, to provide for them, to teach them, to be a good example for them? What are the things, you see, to do good to Karen, my wife? Uh, what good good can I be, do for her to provide, to care, to protect, to instruct, to be an example to, to be faithful to? What's it mean to be a good husband, you see? To my friends, how do I, how do I be a good friend? I have way better friends than I am. So how do I do good to my friends, to initiate, to speak well of them and to them, to be a good example for them, to help them in times of need, to do what I can for them, if you will. In the church, what good do we do here and through the church? What, what good? You know, we, we give, that's good. And so we pray that God, help, help me to give, to resolve to give, to, to share, to, to, to be able to, uh, to teach, to, to hold babies, to, to, to prepare meals, to, to help the sick, to visit those, to... To, to speak to people. What good? You, you know, we should be walking in here this morning with this prayer on our God, how can I do good in this place? Please help me. Help me to, help me to do good in this, in this place. In, in our neighborhoods, so our neighbors who are driving down the street, God, how can I do good to these people? You know, how, what good can I do for, for them? And in our jobs, what good can I do in this place? Doing a good job, serving well, uh, having a good attitude, not complaining, all those kinds of things. What's, what's good there in, a, in our community as a citizen? What good can we do? You see, this is to characterize us. He's, he says, no, you need to pray this. And we can't pray this prayer uh, with, with any sense of, of authenticity, with any sense of integrity, unless we really desire to do good, unless we have these things in our minds. And, and so, you see, I often pray on my way home, what, what good can I do once I walk in the door? And I have to pray that because really when I walk in the door, mostly I just want to go sit down, right? Dads, young children in the home, you know just going and sitting down isn't an option, right? So you need to pray on your way home. I know you worked all day, but, you know, so did your wife. And so you worked all day. So when you're coming home, you should be praying because you need to pray because you're not going to do this unless you do. You need to pray that God will help you do good when you walk when you walk in the door, you see. On your way to work in the morning, pray that you will do good today, right? As you drive around your neighborhood, as you're in the communities, you go in the grocery store, this little grin in your gut that says, what good can I do here in this place right now? Pray about that. And you see, we must pray. Because you see, if we don't pray, we become practicing self-righteous moralists. We become practicing self-righteous Moralist. You see, I think I mentioned last week that one of the great dangers in the church is when we begin to separate or divorce Forgiveness from the cross, from the justice of God. It's a slippage in the church. We have to be careful that we always connect 
our forgiveness with the justice and love of God. Well, another slippage that takes place in the life of the church is that we become believers, we receive these commands, and then we go out and do them as if we can. Now, what keeps us from being self-righteous, oh, I can do this, what becomes moralist, oh, the only thing that matters is us doing good, is prayer. Because in prayer, I admit I can't, and I need the strength, the power, and the help of God to be able to do it. And so when we're sincerely praying, then we can go out without being self-righteous moralists. So St. Augustine was having a debate once, and he was debating about the commands of God. And his opponent was saying the commands of God, since God commands us to do things, it means we must have the ability to do them. And Augustine says, no, 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 no. Just because there's a command doesn't mean that we can. And so Augustine's prayer was, God, command what you will and will what you command. That is, command what you will, but, but give to me all that I need in order to fulfill this. And you see, that's what Paul is saying there. And then finally this, he says, all right, now my aim, my goal in this is that the name of Christ, notice verse 12, so that the name of Christ, name of our Lord Jesus, may be glorified in you. When he says the name of our Lord Jesus, he means the very character of Christ, the very person of Christ. May he be seen, may he be glorified in you. You see, if you live like this, then his character is seen in you. And now a day will come when Christ will be glorified in us perfectly. But till that day, the way that we glorify him, the way that we show him, that we make the invisible Jesus visible, the way that we show him is by doing good, by behaving as if, by behaving as he desires us to behave, to think, to speak, to behave. And so he says, you do this so that the name of Christ will be glorified. Remember what Jesus said, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven, meaning give praise to him, see him. And don't you know that in the midst, can you imagine, here you have this group of persecuted people doing good to their persecutors. Blessing them and not cursing them. Seeking the good of their persecutors. Could you imagine how confusing that would be to the persecutors? They would either think these people and their Jesus are crazy or look at what he's worth, this Jesus. But then Paul says something that, at least to me, is even more extravagant. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. In other words, he says, so that you too can be glorified. That is to say, you can be really seen so that you can be exalted. And we think, no, 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 that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't compute to a Christian. We're not supposed to be exalted and honored and glorified. And I say, no, 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 you're going to be glorified in him, what does that mean? Okay, give me three minutes and think with me. All right? Three minutes. Psalm 8. 
I should have spent the whole time on this, but I won't. Psalm 8. This is a psalm of the majesty of God, a creation psalm. Psalm 8. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Now, you remember at creation, Adam and Eve, given dominion to actually rule. They, human beings, the crown of God's creation. That was forfeited because of sin. It's now restored in Jesus. The day will come, he said, when you will be glorified, that is, you'll be taken to the place of perfection as human beings were always meant to be. You'll have an incorruptible heart that will follow only God. You'll have an incorruptible heart that will love only what God loves. You'll have an incorruptible heart that will only do that which pleases God. You'll have an incorruptible body that will never, ever be sick or any of that, ever perish. And you'll rule and reign on the earth just like you were to rule and reign. So what Paul is praying, that God would fulfill every resolve for every good that they have and fulfill every work of faith by his power. He's saying so that even now, in whatever measure, yes, Christ will be glorified, but you'll really be the people you're to be and always meant to be that you will be living as this crown of God's creation because you were meant to rule and you were meant to rule in such a way that good would come from you. I don't know if that's as thrilling it is to you as it is to me, but that's amazing to think that even now, but, but, but you see, what it requires is that we resolve to do good and it's really good because it's really the good that God desires and, and we're strengthened by him to be able to do it. And so do we realize that when in the name of Christ we're doing good, whether it's in the context of the city, whether it's in the context of our family, whether it's in the context of our neighborhoods, whether it's in the context of our church, wherever it is, whatever context it's in that we're doing good, We're being glorified in Christ. Now the spin is, of course, is that when we're being glorified in Christ, Christ is being glorified because this wouldn't be true without him. So as we do good, people glorify our Father who is in heaven. But we must pray. What this might mean is 
because our time is limited, we may have to stop praying about some of the other things we pray about all the time. Like that we're happy, right? Like that, you know, that piece of furniture I want goes on sale next week. You know, all the important things. We might have to maybe, we might have to start concentrating our prayers that God would fulfill every resolve for good and that he would fulfill every work of faith by his power. Now the confidence that we have is the same confidence that Paul had and that is that this is on the basis of grace right? So the basis of the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That last phrase is what we mean when we pray in Jesus name Amen. Let's Pray together. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that you would grant to us grace to know that which is good and that you would grant us grace, therefore, by your power, as we believe, to do it. And I pray then that people would see the very glory of Christ in that and people would be able to see how it is that human beings were meant to be, that you may be glorified. Father, help us, enable us to do good in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our jobs, in our city. Father, help us. And Father, we pray that you would Enable us to be of assistance to those in need. Father, we're grateful that little Asa Sweat was born last Sunday. And Father, I pray now that you would heal him of this heart situation and use surgeons to do that and all of that. But Father, we pray that you would heal him. Be with Emma and Stephen as they love their son. Father, we pray for Rick Grubbs, uh, Bill's son, Rich and Kim's brother in the hospital in Atlanta. We pray for the Huff family, for Greg's mom, for Shawnee's brother. Father, as they recover for Andrea Bowen's mom, recovering from this bone marrow transplant. We pray, Father, that you would give each in, that, in those spheres a great desire for good and that they would help in the midst of every, every situation. And Father, for us, as a church in this community, Father, I pray that you would enable us to do good here in such a way that people would see that which we do in the name of Christ and that they would, in fact, glorify our Father who is in heaven. This, I pray, we pray in Jesus' name with that confidence. Amen.